By downloading or listening to this podcast, you are agreeing to Moody's legal terms and conditions found at moody's.com slash disclaimer, including that the information provided is not investment or financial advice, and that Moody's will not be liable for losses arising from your use of the information. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Emerging Markets Decoded. I'm your host for today, Shireen Mohammadi, coming to you from New York. Today, we're going to explore the channels through which a growth slowdown in China could affect the global economy. While not our base case, there are rising risks of structural, meaning longer-lasting shifts, driving China's economic growth slowdown. To discuss this and its implications for the rest of the world, I'm joined by my colleague Deborah Tan of the Credit Strategy and Research Team in Singapore. Welcome, Deborah. Thanks for joining us at such a late hour for you. It's always tricky trying to schedule these calls between New York and Singapore, so I really appreciate you coming on. No problem, Shireen. Thank you so much for inviting me to the podcast, and it's really great to be here. Great to have you. So let's get right into it. By now, most of our listeners will be familiar with the cyclical drivers of China's growth slowdown, namely the property sector downturn, which has a negative wealth effect on households who hold a lot of their wealth and housing assets, and the government's zero-COVID policies, which includes strict quarantines that suppress domestic demand, not to mention the related social unrest we've seen recently in part because of these policies, which could also dampen investment sentiment. But there are growing signs that China's growth slowdown could actually be more structural in nature. Can you explain to our listeners what these potential structural drivers are? Sure. Uh, There are three structural factors that could hinder China's economic growth trajectory. The first is demographic trends. Second, an uncertain regulatory environment. And third, trade deglobalization. So on the first first factor, demographic trends, uh, that relates to China's aging population, which will translate into a smaller labor force. Uh, The second factor is uh, higher regulatory uncertainty, particularly around the regulation of internet platforms and education, uh, such as you know restrictions on private tutoring, which you know was seen to be benefiting high income households, this would certainly hurt private sector investment. And the third would be trade deglobalization. When we say that, we simply mean uh, less global trade, less interconnection. So if China has less trade flows with the rest of the world, uh, a country that's integral to global supply chains, then we could see a hit to incomes and employment in its export oriented sectors. Okay, so lower labor force growth given an aging population, lower private investment amid regulatory uncertainty, and the potential rerouting of trade alliances that could hit Chinese exports. These are all longer-term issues though, right? When could we expect these risks to ultimately materialize? Yes, you're right. These are medium to uh, long-term issues that will confront the Chinese economy further down the road. Um, having said that, for this year, next year, um, you know, we still expect Chinese growth to recover, but remain below past trends. So we have lowered our growth ex- expectations for China to 3% in 2022 and 4% in 2023. That's down from previous estimates of 3.5% and 4.8% respectively. Okay, so let's turn to the implications for the rest of the world if the cyclical downturn does indeed turn structural. What regions and sectors would be most exposed to a sustained growth slowdown in China and why? 
So uh, most of the region is part of the Asian manufacturing supply chain. So, um, you know, would have fairly significant direct trade exposure to China. So, for instance, Japan, Korea and Taiwan have the largest direct exposure to Chinese demand for manufactured goods, including electrical machinery and equipment, general machinery and the like. Countries in Southeast Asia also have moderately high direct exposures in certain areas. So, for instance, Vietnam and Malaysia, uh, they export electrical machinery and equipment. Singapore exports plastics and chemicals mainly. Indonesia exports mineral fuel. And Thailand is also highly exposed, uh, although its exposure is more broad-based, given uh, a wider range of exports to China. And finally, I would also add that Australia and Mongolia have significant exposure to Chinese demand for commodities, uh, Chinese demand accounts for nearly 80% of Australia's iron ore exports and um, Mongolia's coal exports to China is a prime source of foreign currency to the country. So with Chinese demand accounting for about 90% of its coal exports. Okay, so the Asia-Pacific region could see lower external demand for their products. What about other parts of the world? Are there any potential implications for other regions? Yes, uh, other regions are exposed to uh, through two channels in particular. One is via low demand for commodities, uh, which would affect non-oil commodity producers, um, you know, like producers of copper, iron ore, etc. And, you know, just to name a few sovereigns, these include Chile, South Africa. And the second channel would be via low investment flows. So, um, you know, China currently lends to low-income, high-risk countries, mostly in Asia and sub-Saharan Africa, through its Belt and Road Initiative. So any deviation in its policy stance uh, would weigh on these economies and exacerbate social risks there. Uh, in fact, since 2021, uh, when the Chinese economy began showing signs of easing, the country already started cutting investments in several emerging and frontier markets, including Pakistan, Sri Lanka and the Maldives, among others, so more could follow suit. Let's turn now to the impact on global inflation. On the one hand, China produces a lot of goods, and we saw supply chain issues with their strict COVID lockdowns contributing to global inflationary pressures from the supply side. On the other hand, China is also a large consumer of commodities, as you mentioned earlier. So if Chinese growth slows and with it demand for commodities goes down, that should ease inflationary pressures on global commodity prices, including oil and gas. So what's the net impact we can expect on global inflation from a sustained period of lower economic growth in China? And could this offset some of the global inflationary pressures from Russia's ongoing military conflict in Ukraine? Uh, certainly, uh, in the event of a sustained slowdown in China and the negative spillovers to the global economy, we would expect overall low economic growth and lower asset values to, to lead to more lasting disinflationary pressures. Uh, having said that, if the ongoing military conflict you know, throws up further surprises leading to a commodity price shock, uh, we would still see volatility in headline inflation even with lower demand from China. And finally, you touched a bit on deglobalization earlier, so I'd like to end on this geopolitical note. How do we expect deglobalization to affect China and its trade partners, if in any way? Will those that you mentioned with higher direct exposures to lower demand from China look to deepen trade ties with other countries or regions as a potential offset? Uh, yes, in, in East Asia, uh, we are already seeing new alliances formed with the U.S., 
So for instance, the formation of the Quad or, or the Quadrilateral Security Dialogue comprising member countries Australia, India, Japan, and the US is one example of countries in the region seeking to counter China's growing strategic influence. Taiwan, Japan, and Korea are also part of the CHIP4 alliance with the US, which reduces trade integration and tech exchange with mainland China. The ASEAN bloc, which consists mainly of emerging markets in Southeast Asia, such as Thailand and Cambodia, uh, has existing free trade agreements with the other advanced economies in the region. However, in terms of access to the US and EU, uh, most ASEAN countries currently do not have bilateral trade agreements, with the exception of Singapore and more recently Vietnam with the EU. I'll just add that you know more broadly, uh, this trend of deglobalization would lead to a structural slowdown in global trade flows and reduced technology transfer. And then these would be particularly negative for for lower and middle income countries that are aiming to develop their export sectors or you know that rely on foreign direct investment to sustain their external balances. However, you know some countries you know in in ASEAN, for example, stand to benefit from from the shifts in foreign direct investment uh, on the back of the China Plus One strategy. For instance, Vietnam and Malaysia are the most competitive in the region in terms of potential investment locations. Okay, so to sum things up, a sustained growth slowdown in China would first and foremost spill over to the APAC region more broadly, lowering demand for manufactured goods from East Asia and for inputs from Southeast Asia. And it could also lead to lower Chinese investment flows to lower-income countries in other parts of the world, which for those countries could contribute to social pressures, if not offset by financial flows from elsewhere. And while deglobalization would weigh on low- and middle-income countries that are aiming to develop their export sectors, some ASEAN economies, like Vietnam and Malaysia, could benefit, given they've already developed a competitive position for countries other than China to tap into. Deborah, thanks so much for coming on to the show today and sharing your insights with us. And thank you to our listeners for joining us. If you have any comments or feedback, please feel free to email us at empodcast at moody's.com. Until next time, stay safe. Thanks for listening to this Moody's Talks podcast. To find out more about the topics discussed, please follow the links in the show notes. You can check out other Moody's Talks podcasts by visiting moody's.com slash podcasts.